Today's episode with Dr. Farber is a fascinating one. I learned a lot about his perception, perspective, socioeconomic trends, types of people in long-term care. And we talked about the system being broken and how he thinks it could be fixed, why it's broken, and ageism. We've jumped around to what's the difference between a medical director and a medical doctor and their role in leadership. I hope you appreciate this chat with Dr. Farber as much as I did. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today. Hello, and welcome back to LTC Heroes. I'm your host, Peter Murphy-Lewis. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We have a great podcast in store for you. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jeffrey Farber, President and CEO at Jewish Home in New York. Dr. Farber has only recently made his way into the world of long-term care leadership. And in his time here, he's gone through many goods, a few bads, and one or two ugly times. Dr. Farber, welcome to LTC Heroes. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Dr. Farber, I think we're going to jump all over. In our first chat, you shared a lot of different quotes with me, and I was so interested in them. I said, please don't elaborate. I want to save it for the real podcast. But before we get into the trends and your experience in long-term care and your opinions and directions of where the industry is going, I'd like to get to know you as a person a little bit. So I'm going to start off with, Dr. Farber, do you have any uncommon hobbies that you love? Sure, Peter. Good question. Not technically so uncommon, though I'd say much rarer than it should be, especially for us urbanites here in New York City. I really love hiking and breathing mountain fresh air. I was in Vermont recently with my son on a trip before I sent him off to start college. It's therapeutic. It's soul nourishing. It you know, quiets my mind and it helps me really focus on what matters and a lot about being and living more in the present. I, I think like many of us are really always future focused and, and thinking about what needs to get done and what we want to do and being out in forest bathing and hiking like that helps me try and do a better job of being, you know, more present. Thanks for sharing that. I added hiking to my list of hobbies older in life, I would say about the age of 36 after I had my son. So I also share that with you. I wish that I'd gotten into it early and my wife would say the same, but at least I have it now on my resume. Awesome. Dr. Farber, what's the most recent non-long-term care book that you've read? Also good question, Peter. I like to read a lot of eclectic, you know, non-work-related materials. The last one, actually, I, I read through a novel while I was up in Vermont for the week with my son. It's called The Push by Ashley Audrain, which is a very dark novel. It's about a mother-daughter relationship, not a very healthy or good mother-daughter relationship. And it's one of those books that's like really hard to read because it's so dark and it's so disturbing, but it's also really hard to put down because it's such a well-written thriller and I tore right through it. So I would cautiously recommend to those who have the stomach to tolerate. It's a, it's a novel, fiction, but it's, it's tough. I also share that passion for thrillers and novels. After having too many nightmares, I told my wife this morning, I woke up, I said, you know, I'm going to read these books before 7 p.m. I'm going to pick up something lighter afterwards. Smart. Yeah. It certainly impacted me a little bit on the nights, but once I'm up and clear the head, it's, it's gone and I'm ready to get that fresh mountain air and all, all's good. Well, Dr. Farber, now that the ice is broken, let's get into the industry. If there's one thing that you could change in long-term care with a snap of fingers, what would that be? This is actually easy. I mean, I think this is the primal challenge of our industry and quite frankly, our society today. And that is, you know, reversing our long-held, strong and broadly accepted ageism, right, as a country. We need to appreciate and respect and value and embrace the oldest amongst us. And as a country, we do the exact opposite. So if there was one thing I could change, and that's part of what I love what I'm doing in 20 years as a physician and a geriatrician, and probably get into some of this, I think that's key to everything. And it unlocks lots of solutions to the challenges we face in the industry, if we were mm -hmm. able to really address this underlying and rampant ageism. Normally, I have a couple more kind of semi-structured questions that I would ask, but I want to pause on 
the ageism and talk about your perspective and how our society embraces or avoids or neglects it. How did you come to that perspective? And, and are you somewhat optimistic? Are you pretty pessimistic? Do you see any hope for light at the tunnel in proving our way of approaching ageism? The short version is I was particularly close with a set of grandparents when I was a teenager, right? In, in one's formative years. I got interested and saw firsthand what hospice was, fusion packs of opioids for chronic pain from progressive cancer, death and dying with loved ones, and, and wasn't naturally repulsed by being with older people, with grayness, with wrinkles, with slowness, and then realized over time that that was actually not the norm, right? And most people have a natural kind of fear and reluctance to be around and seeing and smelling and touching, you know, people that are older, because we're so focused as a society on and value youth and vigor and independence and strength and things that tend to happen with aging, we therefore view as all bad and negative. And so I started developing this sense that there was a disconnect here, kind of early, and then college and med school and all that really started realizing. And I think a lot of it, Peter, hit home when I decided I wanted to specialize in geriatrics, right? So you're in med school, you do all your rotations. I I really like medicine and I like older adult medicine, which I find more complicated. And so therefore, you know, more interested and and interesting and less cookie cutter, you know, it's it's multiple competing priorities that you have to manage. In residency, I said, hey, I want to do geriatrics fellowship. And I found it really hard to get any support because all I heard was like, why would you want to do that? right? You could be doing, and people would name all of the more prestigious and lucrative specialties, you know, go into GI and cardiology and nephrology and oncology. Like, why would you want to do that? Because I really like old people. And I think that there's a tremendous need. It's the fastest growing segment of the population. We haven't paid attention or or invested resources and research, education, training. And I like it, right? I get a lot back when you're talking to older people. You know, I realized a lot of what underpinned it too was this ageism was not just in society, but it's embedded throughout the, the medical system, right? So when I finished my residency in medicine and then I finished two-year fellowship in geriatrics, I'm now double board certified, right? So I'm a board certified medical doctor and internist and board certified in geriatrics. And you go out to the workplace and it's shocking, but it's true. It's the only situation that I know of where now you get paid less because you have a second board certification than if you only had the one. That's how much we undervalue and underappreciate geriatrics. We even disincentivize financially the very few people that choose to spend an extra year or two training in geriatrics and, and learning how to treat older people and getting board certified by saying, well, now we think you're worth less as a physician, so we'll pay you less. So this that's when it became like crystal clear that something is fundamentally wrong here. And then it went on and on and I can continue and we may now or later throughout our time together. But the second part of the question, Peter, I do believe that we are poised and will, you know, make progress on on reversing that. And a lot of that is what keeps me really passionate about what I do here at Jewish Home. And one of the programs that we may talk about is something we innovated 14 years ago called Geriatrics Career Development. And essentially, we take high school kids from really failing, under-resourced public high schools in New York City. It's an after-school program a few days a week. They come here. We teach them how to be certified nursing assistants, phlebotomists, EKG techs. They go up on the floors and help out hundreds of hours per year for each student. And they develop meaningful relationships with people. You know, these are 15, 16, 17-year-old kids spending hundreds of hours with, you know, average age is like high 80s, 85 to 90-year-olds with lots of medical problems and frailty. And it's magic. It's an incredible program. It works. We've graduated over 900 students. We've hired several hundred. They're all going on to college. But it's a way that you can address the ageism by creating opportunities for intergenerational interactions. And so they're not going to be like most who are just repulsed by and scared of and want to run the other way, you know, when they see someone who's 90 and frail and speaks slowly and takes a long time to get out of bed or, you know. And so I think. If we can do that here, we can do it many other places and create these opportunities. I really think we can reverse that false narrative about older people simply being an economic burden, a silver tsunami. You know, one of these terms I can't stand, right? It's this notion of a catastrophic, you know, death-inducing 
event that's going to wipe out people. It's like, what are you talking about? This should be treasured and valued and appreciated that we're living longer. And everybody aspires to do that. Like, so why do we flip all of a sudden and say, I don't want to see you, hear about you, pay for you, touch you, you know? And so, yes, I think there's, I'm optimistic that, that things will change. It won't happen overnight. But I kind of think it's akin a little bit to palliative care and hospice care, which was not well received either when the movements really started several decades ago. And it's become much better. It still has work to do, but I think we'll get there on this, on this front too. I want to go back to one of the first things you said that getting a double degree means that you get a lower salary. Why is that? That's the first time I've heard that. Two reasons. I mean, the basic math is because of the fee-for-service chassis that drives our three-plus trillion-dollar healthcare marketplace. And in fee-for-service, you get paid for what you do. And the more you do, then the more you can get paid, more bills you could submit as claims to get paid for interactions with delivering services to patients. Geriatricians, you know, your patients are older. They have more medical problems. It does take them longer, for example, to get up onto the exam table. And it takes longer to get a good history because there's more history to give, right? There's more accumulated decades of important medical, surgical, you know, information to relay. And so you can't churn through quickly and, you know, have a typical five to seven minute visit. Okay, what do you need? I'll give you a prescription, you know, go home, call me if you have a problem. And then I can bill for each one. It takes longer, right? Mm -hmm. So because of the fee-for-service system that undervalues that work I just described, you know, that cognitive sort of relationship building, deep understanding, individual weighing of competing priorities, okay, which area is most important to you? You know, we'll address that first because you have diabetes and heart failure and coronary artery disease and hypertension and a stroke, you know, so you can't do everything like it doesn't make sense. So what's the most important and all that kind of stuff. So that's the one main reason. It's just a productivity-based, fee-for-service based disincentive to treating older adults. And the second is it's that ageism, right? It's the prestige. The medical system is not totally separated from the society within which it lives. And society says, we undervalue old people. You know, we're all about technology, newness. Again, independence, vitality, strength, competition, speed. I mean, you know, we can't do anything if we're not multitasking, we're like not productive. It's crazy, right? So all of that stuff are factors that go against this notion of geriatrics and treating older people, which is why you have so few. One of the reasons you have so few people doing it. One of the things that you said in our first chat was you said that there are three types of people in nursing homes. And I said, and I interrupted you and I said, don't tell me what they are. <laughs> Today, I want you to tell me what they are. Is this a common understanding that everyone says? Is this something you've developed over time? It's actually not a common understanding. I've come to realize it's not something I understood until relatively recently in my role here as CEO at the New Jewish Home. I started understanding and seeing some of it as a fellow training when I was back as a physician in training fellowship in geriatrics. But it really hit me when I was trying to, you know, everything is always complicated. And I think a lot of my job and my colleagues, fellow CEOs and other organizations job is to keep things simple and to have a narrative and understanding at a high level that you can relate to other people and therefore you can make good decisions and communicate effectively. And I realized that essentially there are these three very different types of people that we serve in 15,000 nursing homes today throughout the country, where there's about, you know, call it one and a half million older people, right, that are living. And they're totally different. So there's a third, roughly speaking, that are what most people would think of and conjure in their mind's eye when you say nursing home. And that's an older person who really has such high care needs, who has functional dependence and often cognitive impairments, talk more about that too, dementia, that they're not best positioned to continue to live at home anymore. They have around the clock, we call it ATC in healthcare, right? And physician language, around the clock, ATC, around the clock needs, supportive care needs. They need help getting out of bed, help getting into bed, help eating, help getting dressed, help getting bathed, help getting to the dining room to eat, you know, all sorts of assistance that is therefore best provided in a nursing home setting where you have that skilled nursing and other you know, health professional care 24-7. And generally speaking, this is people that are at the end of life, right? Towards the end mm -hmm. of life. 
the last year or two on average. And length of stays are compressing in nursing homes probably less than two years. Average length of stay for what you would describe as this first of the three types of nursing home patients that we care for. That's number one. And the majority are on Medicaid. The majority have you know spent whatever they can spend because it's so expensive, this kind of care, and spend down their money and you know, or don't have the resources and end up on the state's you know, insurance for poor people. So they're old and poor and now they're Medicare. The second kind, which I think a lot of people think about, but you know, and it's what sort of drives most of our industry's focus, which is rehab, which is what I like to call get well, go home, which is, you know, the healthcare piece of helping people almost always that are coming to us from hospitals after either an exacerbation of a chronic illness or a new acute illness. Think about a heart failure exacerbation or a, a pneumonia or a COVID-19 illness that landed someone in the hospital and now they're recovering and they still need a lot of care and treatment and rehabilitation, physical therapy, skilled nursing, wound care, speech language after strokes, you know, how to eat, how to speak, occupational, how to use you know, equipment around the home. And it's all about high acuity, restorative rehab, get well, go home. These patients are much younger in general. Average age of the first group is high 80s and getting older. This group is often 70s, sometimes mm-hmm. low, you know, it could be all ranges, but on average, at least a decade lower. And their goals are entirely different, right? This isn't their home. They're not there for the last phase of their lives. They're there to continue to recover. It's kind of like a continued hospital stay. Mm-hmm. It's much more like a hospital than a nursing home. And everybody in our industry tries to do more, as much of this as possible, because it's Medicare that generally pays for it, and they're a better payer. They're a more fair payer that pays closer to the cost of delivering that care, as opposed to Medicaid, which we can get into, which is chronically underfunded and getting worse. And, and you know, you lose every day and it's hard. Can't make that up in volume. So you have these two kinds of patients that I think most people recognize. But then there's the third kind, Peter, that I kind of saw more as I got to know people here, walk around, meet the residents. And you find, well, and you start asking, like, why is she here? So there's a woman I'll call Mary. I see her all the time. She's out in the gardens. We've had to create a separate section where we allow people to smoke because they came here, they're smoking, mm-hmm. and they don't want to smoke. And, you know, separate from the main gardens, fine. So she goes out all the time, you know, a dozen times a day to go smoke. She walks down the street, goes to the corner grocery store, the bodega, you know, buys a pack of cigarettes, comes back. Like she doesn't need help getting out of bed, eating, drinking, smoking for that matter, you know. These are people that kind of fell through the, the, the social fabric cracks in our society, the homeless, if you will, like don't have a home to go to. They're comfortable here. And us in general, you know, we're comfortable having people like that, this third category, because it is easier for us to care for them. They don't have such high care needs. They're not at the very end of life and need a lot of treatment around the clock. And so, sure, right, you stay here. And that number, I think, is a lot bigger than most people realize. And again, they have different care needs. They're different people. They're not at that last phase of life, and they're also not getting better and going home. It's their home for really lack of a, a more appropriate alternative home, I'll call it. So it sounds like the third group is more of a social, maybe social economic issue than a need-based type of person. For sure. And you know, nobody has a real incentive to want to go figure this out or address it right now. I think that may change soon when we talk a little, you know, about what I think may happen with our industry. But people, like I said, it's not malintended in any way. It's a confluence of factors that lead a bunch of older people that don't have a home to go to or family that is willing or able to take them or family, period. And they're here for rehab, something happened, and they don't have a place to go to, they stay and they're comfortable and they just stay. And the nursing homes say, well, you know, sure, right? It's easy to care for you. I like you. We have a relationship. You know us. And you're not that difficult, right? So the care needs aren't so high. And so it's the same. And, and roughly the payments are going to be roughly the same. So you can actually like better afford to take care of somebody when you don't have to actually deliver a tremendous amount of care. And so they end up staying. But you're absolutely right. It's really social failures in the system that lead to this group. And the reason that you have even rehab and long-term care, those two populations in the same, it makes no sense. It's all reimbursement driven. Again, it, it makes no sense to me whatsoever, right? The license is the same certificate of need in New York, at least, and I know in other states and and for skilled nursing facilities don't distinguish between the two, but they're radically different kinds of care, different needs, different patients, different desired outcomes. And yet they're happening in the same place with the same staff and the same building 
Dr. Farber, how long have you been in long-term care? So, I mean, as a geriatrician, I'm a physician now 20 years, but I've been in my role. This is my fourth year as president and CEO at the New Jewish Home. So as a, as a leader in long-term care, focusing my career here, it's, it's only the last four years. Before that, I spent a lot of time in different roles in a large academic hospital-based health system in New York City and did all sorts of interesting things. And the focus was mostly on population health, population health management and sort of value-based care. I mentioned people service a little bit earlier with the poor incentives, working to transform that into a, a value-based you know, payment model. In what brought you specifically into the long-term care leadership role? And if you could speak to how's it been, I know that you feel comfortable <laughs> with strong opinions and I like to hear them. I know that you and I both know Dr. Mike Wasserman, who also is, can be controversial. I'm wondering how, if you could speak to how you got to having such sharp insight in long-term care, if you're relatively new to the industry. I had been working in my career and just enjoying opportunities to, to branch out and do different things. When opportunities arose within the, the Mount Sinai, which is where I work, the large, and I still have my, my academic affiliation there as an associate professor, and, and I really enjoy that. When this opportunity to lead a very like-minded, culturally similar, philosophically aligned, long-term partner of my then employer, Rose and I have been very interested in leadership. I studied business as well, have a, a master's in business association that I did while I was working at Mount Sinai and had successive responsibilities and abilities to try out different types of work and, and quality and compliance and operations, revenue cycle, finance, all sorts of interesting things. And said so this would be a real challenge and a way for me to focus my skills as a position executive on trying to impact a much larger, you know, we're taking care of close to 10,000 older people a year. And as a geriatrician, again, I'm most excited by and what gets me jazzed in the morning is the work that I do related to older people. Not that I don't like kids. I've got a few. I love them. And usually when we're at parties and friends, people, how come you didn't become a pediatrician? I'm always the one playing with the kids, you know, having the most fun. And I really like working with older people. And so I wanted this opportunity. I felt I could make a, a bigger difference in an industry that at the core speaks to my my personal values and what motivates me. In terms of your perspective, just in our first 20 minutes of chatting, you've brought up what seem to be or appear to be systemic issues, socioeconomic problems, sociological concerns that are beyond the scope of your role at New Jewish Home and even previous. So I'm wondering if you are interested in policy. Is this a hobby? Is it a passion that you share with your colleagues? Does it affect the way that you work and trying to make the change at the individual level where you work, but then also at the higher level? That's a little tricky for me, Peter. I mean, I, I enjoy, you know, thinking about and coming up with ideas and creative potential solutions to what I see are pragmatic challenges that we all have. At the same time, I've developed, especially over the past year and a half, pretty healthy, it's the right word, distaste for politics. I don't see myself ever kind of going that route. I, I find it really hard to navigate. That's part of my job that, that I find actually really hard. And, and during the pandemic, there was this other, what I found to be entirely uh, unnecessary and also, you know, 100% harmful narrative in the media and elected officials around, you know, nursing homes basically being the scapegoat for the pandemic and all of these tens of thousands older people should not have died and would not have died had it not been for these incompetent and, and corrupt and problematic nursing homes. Mm. And instead of, you know, getting support, we need PPE, you know, we need testing. It was all, you know, finger pointing, blame assigning, and we were sort of the proverbial football, if you will, you know, tossed between lots of political actors. And so policy and politics kind of isn't my thing. At the same time, I, I embrace and I welcome and I have conversations with folks that, that are in that space that hopefully maybe they can do some things with ideas. I do think there are lots of interesting ideas to incentivize the right kind of, you know, care models and care structures in this, in this place, but policy and politics is... Uh... To shake up the conversation a little bit, I also remember on our very first chat a little over a month ago, I said, I'd love to talk to you about 
trends and you said, oh, I love to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. We've alluded to the ugly or at least the bad. In your recent entry into leadership in long-term care, what stands out as the good to you? It's always helpful. I don't think we do enough of this for one another and ourselves of framing and thinking about, you know, and I like to do this at the dinner table, right? You know, what went well today? Let's not always focus on all the terribleness and what actually went well. And there are lots of, you know, rewarding events in, in everyone's career. And I, especially these, you know, past couple of years here at Jewish Home, there's a couple, I mean, that stand out, Peter. There's these magical moments, first of all, like you just, I get everyday opportunities to, to be a part of them, right? So yesterday I walk through a garden, you know, I come in through the main entrance, my office where I sit is kind of behind another building. And so I get to see people say hi and chat and then go outside the building through the gardens, you know, into the back door of this other office building where I'm sitting. And, you know, there's Vivian, you know, having a birthday party, you know, in the garden, tablecloth, you know, balloons, cake and cupcakes, you know, flowers, smiles, tons of people, jokes, you stop, you chat, you know, you wish well, you talk about birthday and this, and there's also, you know, a student there, one of our geriatrics career development students, like it's, and, and it's just uh, that student, teenager has developed a meaningful relationship with, with Vivian who's celebrating, you know, her milestone birthday out in the gardens with some family. And, being able to witness and participate, you know, in these meaningful interactions and relationships that are building is, you know, there's nothing more soul nourishing than that, mm. right? It's like a, a brief clip that you can experience. And if I want more, I just get out of my office and I walk the floors and I get more, right? So like, it's all the time there and it really is tremendous. And, and I'll add to it, it's the, it's the staff where you see again, people that, you know, they're here for the right reasons, Yes, it's a hard industry. Yes, it's really hard work. And lots of times it can be physically exhausting, mentally exhausting, you know, draining emotionally. And, you know, especially throughout the last 17, 18 months of this pandemic, you're on the floors, you see people, and they're just truly heroes, like LTC heroes, like the people on the floor, and you get all choked up. And, and it's just beautiful. I'll give you one story that just comes to mind. There was the height of the pandemic here in New York City, when we were at the global epicenter back in March, April, and into May of, of last year. And I mean, it was, it was a horror. And there was just, you know, sickness and death and dying, fear everywhere. And I'm there trying my best to, you know, support the staff, to answer their questions, to be with them, you know, as much as possible. Seven days, you know, so on the weekends, I would come in all the time, go visit the floors. What do you need? You have your PPE. Let's bring some lunch. Let's do what we can. And I remember looking and I said, what? And all of a sudden I saw somebody that I, I like recognized, did a double take and, and I, I'll say a different name, Joan, let's say. And I said, Joan, Joan like, is that you? What, what, are you? what are you doing here? It's a Saturday. We're up on a long-term care floor. There's, you know, chaos everywhere. And you're wearing a scrubs. And she had worked for us for about a year plus in the executive office doing work that was non-clinical around client experience and helping customers, you know, thinking and getting a better interaction and relationship and responding more nimbly to complaints and questions. And I'd even forgotten she was actually a nurse by background and left and moved with her husband to the Midwest. And that was, you know, months before this pandemic. And so I said, well, what are you, is that, what are you doing here? And so in the height of all of this, you know, she was reading on the news what was happening in New York. And said, I, you know, I have to help, right? So she gets on a plane when no one's flying anywhere. I mean, I was driving over the GW bridge and sometimes I was the only car on the bridge. It was insane. No, everything was shut down. No one's flying. She gets on a plane, leaves her husband, comes to work. And she's, she got here the day before and she's doing a 12 hour shift on a Saturday, like up on the floors, like helping. Beautiful. I mean, unbelievable. We actually put a story up on the website. You know, she agreed and interviewed about her and helping again to inspire and share those stories to counter the kind of horrific narrative that the general media puts out there around us and the industry and the pandemic. But you have these opportunities like that, and that's what's right. And if we could, you know, create and nurture and cultivate those opportunities, you know, it's a virtuous spiral upwards. That's a beautiful story. I'll share that in the show notes, if that's okay with you. In terms of challenges, you move from academia and acute into long-term care, was there anything that you had to learn? And if so, 
what was the hardest thing to understand about our industry or your organization or your type of resident? And where did you turn to to learn? Did you call peers? Did you talk to your predecessor? Tell me a little bit about that learning process for you. I undertook a, a really extensive, deep inquiry in the first many months coming here. A lot of visiting, and we have sites in different parts of the city, Bronx, Westchester, Manhattan, home-based operations, housing. Go talk to a lot of people at all levels in the organization to gather a lot of primary data points to help understand what's going on. And of course, a lot of you know, information, reports, financials, historical, asking tons of questions and sort of peeling back layers of onions. One of the greatest sources of information, of help, framing for references sake, because, you know, I would often be the one like, you know, I'm new to, let's say it's the um, local advocacy group called CCLC, colleagues throughout the New York City area like me involved for many years, you know, and I would be the one to raise my hand. I don't, I don't really understand. I'm missing something fundamental because there seems to be a big disconnect, which can be a helpful thing to do. And you got to moderate it because you don't want to be annoying and ask questions all the time. But then I would reach out to a couple of colleagues that I made, you know, acquaintances who've since become extremely good friends and supportive colleagues. And throughout the pandemic, I mean, it was, I don't think, I mean, I know I would not have made it through had it not been for these two, you know, colleagues in particular and help each other out and reach out and talk and meet virtually. Once things happened, we were able to meet in person. One of them I hadn't even met Rita in person at all until after the horrors of last spring when, you know, and then, and then we were able to meet for the first time and together and then since become again closer and, and even more supportive of, of one another. So a lot of it comes from building those trusted relationships with colleagues in the industry who, who I respect and appreciate a lot, who've been around and can help me and shed light on, you know, my blind spots. Is there anything specific that you can remember one of your peers sharing with you that you're glad that they shared that with you and you didn't have to learn it, you know, on the run? A lot during the pandemic, we did that. So for one another, say, hey, we found this testing company and set up the ability and, and you should just call that because everyone's scrambling and trying to find and there's an executive order that you have to start testing everybody twice a week. But that means, you know, thousands of tests and there was not enough testing capacity and no labs were doing it. And, you know, you'd help each other to kind of figure that out. Other things I think around Albany, again, politics, New York State, sort of how to manage that were very helpful. And I'd say, ah, okay, light bulb moment. I get it now. I don't, you know, I see why it works this way. It doesn't make sense to me. But historically, now I get, you know, why we're at where we're at. We first chatted, you said that you like to talk about trends. I'm guessing you talk about trends with your team, with your staff, with your peers. Where do you keep your ear to the ground to understand trends? How do you pay attention to them? When do you determine this is not a trend of six months and this might be a trend of 10 years? Can you walk me through how you listen? This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care. Experience Care is a provider of world-class EHRs that alleviate the pain of disorganization in your facility. Its dashboard is designed to minimize confusion and maximize productivity. Experience Care is designed for CEOs that care about their CNAs and their residents alike. Visit Experience.Care to learn more about the best EHR in the market. That's a great question. I do think that's critical for our industry. You know, we are really at an inflection point here. And I think a tremendous amount of change is going to happen in a fairly short period of time, much more so than in anyone's recent past. And I think that's largely because our whole system is on the verge of breaking. You know, this long-term care system is, is not working for most. It is going to break. And then what I hope will be is a new, you know, more thoughtful version of, you know, of care, of long-term care for older people that, that works. I'm excited to be, you know, around now as, as part of that tumult and excitement and help shape in whatever way I can, you know, where things will play out. I, I get a lot of information you know, from various sources. I mean, I like our industry trade groups and they've got good daily sort of highlights via email, what's going on locally, nationally, weekly summaries of more important things that I might have missed, meetings for sure, virtual now, but in person. Also, I think the lay press, it's a, it's a very helpful way to hear what other, that helped a lot during the pandemic, trying to understand where people are coming from. 
business press in general, not just healthcare, but in general, business climate impacts a lot of what we do. The academic world too. So I keep a lot, I read a lot, and I keep a lot up to speed on what's happening in the academic world that I used to work in, sort of live mm-hmm. more closely in. And then those colleagues, you know, conversations where, where you throw out an idea and get some, you know, feedback on it sort of in real time and helps you then noodle on it. Any unusual sources, channels, mediums that you normally wouldn't think that a CEO of a, one of the most important long-term care organizations would hang out? Is there, and you don't have to say the name, is there a Facebook group that you pay attention to? Because you're like, this is the way that my staff thinks. I just need to make sure I listen. Or do you watch something on YouTube or look at a Reddit? Or how do you pay attention to things that might not make it to your level of your peers? That's a really good question, Peter. But I, I don't have a secret kind of social media go-to for this information. I really rely upon the, the growing network of our industry. And I'm probably in the minority here of opinions about this. We are, it's a service industry. And it, by definition, is very high touch. And there's a role for technology, but it's limited. And I think, you know, we often look too much for the quick fix, for the silver bullet, for the newest, latest, greatest. It's sort of related to that ages mission, right? That infatuation with things that are new, bigger is better. And this goes against core geriatrics principles. Bigger is not better. More is not better. You know, in fact, geriatrics, a lot of what we do is called de-prescribing. You know, let me see all the medicines that you're on. And wow, that's 12 medicines on average. I did this study actually back when I was at Sinai. And you say, well, do you, re- you know, go through each one? Do you really need to be on this? And do you even remember what it's for and who prescribed it and why? And when you cut medicines out because you can't find any reason, people feel a lot better, powerfully strong, you know. And they did this study that I used to use to teach the students. There was hundreds of people that were, you know, had thousands of medicines that were moved. No one needed to go back on any of them. And they all felt better, like without them. So kind of less is more. And so going back to the Technology, I think it's people business. It's a lot about relationships and building relationships of trust and inspiring confidence. Mm-hmm. And that's what I try and do professionally because I think I get more as a learner and I hope as a contributor to you know, others as well through dialogue of building those relationships and having conversations. It's hard for me to really digest or think I'm going to glean an insight from reading a Facebook you know, right. post. You, Maybe it's you, akin to like my trading philosophy. I think you invest in long-term and things that you understand and know and not try and like arbitrage or make bets on partial information. So, Dr. Farber, I've, I've spoken to hundreds of CEOs over the last year, many of them on this podcast, and only a handful have used the word long-term care is broken. What do you mean by it's broken? And then you also, I heard some optimism in your voice and that you think that it's going to get fixed. What do you mean that it's broken? How do you think that it's going to completely break so that we can start to fix it? What I've learned is that because of the underlying ageism out there, there's been a a longstanding lack of resources, attention, energy, financial, workforce into our industry. Like I said, no one wants to see, touch, feel, be around old people. Send them someplace where they're out of sight. We're not going to put money in or invest or resources into it. And what's happened as a result, we have the most prosperous nation on the planet. You know, we've just decided to not put adequate resources into paying fairly for these long-term care services. And so, for example, in, in New York State, the Medicaid daily rate hasn't changed in 14 years. Well, actually, that's not true. It's, it was decreased twice recently, even during the pandemic. And once, you know, before January 1st of last year, came out like a 1% cut on New Year's Eve. There's been no adjustments for inflation and healthcare inflation has always been higher than general inflation, but labor is your your biggest thing and you want to pay everybody fairly and you've got contracts and and collective bargaining agreements and, you know, it doesn't work. So it's broken financially and workforce-wise for the same underlying reasons, which is ageism. And so you've got this, and this is something I didn't understand at all until coming into the industry. And now I've been seeing the escalation of the, Demise of the non-for-profit, mission-driven, you know, long-term care industry and replaced with the for-profit, often sort of larger conglomerate 
chains of long-term care providers. And, and they're different. It's, it's not the same thing in terms of, you know, lots of measured outcomes that are out there. This isn't new stuff that I'm making up. And so you've got the flight of and the demise of longstanding pillars of the community, mission-driven, non-for-profit, or what I like to call for community benefit, because not-for-profit doesn't really tell you anything. It just tells you what you're not doing, but it doesn't tell you what you are doing, right? So what we're really doing is trying to enhance the community. And so we're benefiting the community, and that's our goal. We're disappearing for two main reasons, right? One is the financial. You can't make up in volume, you know, a loss per patient per day, right, on every bed. And every year, that loss gets compounded. It's like the inverse of an annuity, right? And so the compounded interest gets put in the wrong direction. And, you know, the 3% inflation that you're missing every year gets compounded when you're stagnant on your rates and you just can't do it. And you cut staff and you cut this. And at some point you can't cut because you're not going to be comfortable going to sleep at night you know, providing the kind of care that is only affordable with the rates you're getting. And then to make that happen, you know, one of the early advice, right, that I got from others in the industry is like, well, you got to diversify your revenue streams, diversify your revenue streams, you know, beef up your private pay, do more rehab. That's fundamentally what's wrong with the system. Because if we do all that, which everybody does, because otherwise you can't survive, that means no one's paying attention to caring and focusing and innovating on the core, most needy, end of life, nursing home patient, like the first that I described in the three kinds on Medicaid, you can't afford a private community, can't afford a million dollar buy-in to a planned living community. And so you, you've got the collapse of this social structure that's supposed to be there to support the indigent, right, at the end of life. And so I'm not worried about offerings and what's out there for people with means. I think they're doing great things. A lot of my colleagues are doing wonderful things. There's good offerings. There's a growth of planned living communities or what we used to call continuing care retirement communities. All of that's wonderful. But what about the people that can't afford to pay? And there, there's been no answer and there's been the flight and people kind of try and minimize to the extent possible how much they do there because everybody loses money there. And so that was why I say fundamentally it's going to break. And the second piece, I think, is the workforce. When you talk to our industry, you know, the two main challenges are financial and the workforce. And the workforce shortage is directly related to the financial. Without, you know, resources and priority given, when a geriatrician, you know, says, I'm going to do an extra year or two of training, but I'm going to, you're going to get paid less. When someone says, I'm going to work with frail, vulnerable, older adults that require a lot more difficult, you know, frontline caregiving, but you get paid the least than people working in other healthcare settings, right? With similar degrees and training. You're not gonna get what you need. And I think that also has to change, which is why I can change anything. We talked about the very beginning, the magical wand I would use would be, let's eliminate that underlying ageism. So, so I think it's gonna break it. You're gonna have this system for, old, for people with means, that's fine, great, all the power to you, but we're failing miserably, people without means. How long before it breaks and outside of our industry, people decide that they are going to weigh in and politics is going to weigh in. Are we going to see this in our lifetime or could this drag on broken for another 30 years? I believe and hope that we will see it in our lifetime and sooner rather than later. I think COVID, for as devastating as this pandemic has been, and I would never wish upon you know, my worst enemy a fraction of the horrors that we all experienced. You got to take things for what they are and try and find some way to make good out of it. And I think that, you know, this pandemic has accelerated this path towards change. Some of it's misguided, right? So there's this fundamental belief now out there, I'll call it magical thinking, that will throw a lot of money into what we call home and community-based programming. That's a big buzzword now and of all the different budgets and stimulus money and care, you know, there's a $400 billion number out there. Let's Invest in that, and this way we don't need nursing homes. And nobody wants to be in a nursing home, and so let's help them stay at home, and we'll throw a lot of money at home and community services, everything will be okay. And that's not going to work because of the first group of the three groups. It'll absolutely work for the third group, right? I mean, I'd say go repurpose empty hotels, go buy them up if you're the city, the state, what have you, and put the group that doesn't need the around-the-clock care needs but needs a home into other types of living situations, apartments, hotel rooms, whatever you want with some services, affordable housing with services, that's great. But there's nothing stopping people from doing that now. 
It's just mm-hmm. the systems aren't aligned, incentives aren't aligned to want to do that. But the fastest growing segment of the population is going to be and continue to be the oldest old, 85 and up. And there's going to be an increasing demand and need for that more end of life, you know, around the clock, high care needs patients that's not going to be best delivered at home. And so you're going to want to create like a new model, which I have ideas for too, that I would call compassionate care homes, you know, and I would actually only have nonprofits play in this space, right? Provide that service, just like hospitals in many states. We don't have for-profit ones. We should have non-for-profit compassionate care homes. They should be single-bedded rooms, which is what we would all want. They should be on a greenhouse-inspired care model, you know, small, small household kind of model, deep knowing of the staff. We should have the adequate funds to pay the staff good wages that's competitive, that people attracts people to the field and find, because you're going to find, once people come in, they find that meaning and purpose why I love geriatrics, what I do, what I do, but you're not going to expose them to it. If you you continue with this narrative that it's this, you know, horrible sort of industry. My next topic that I want to talk to you is specifically about models. There are some nuanced models. Some of them have been around for quite some time, but they're lesser known. There's, there's PACE programs in New York. I know it. Home care is becoming uh, trendy. You just mentioned a model what models do you think are most broken and what models do you have the most hope that will, will at least, I don't want to say salvage, that are headed in the right direction, even if they're not perfect? For institutional end-of-life care, which is really what nursing homes should be providing, the greenhouse model is the best model out there, period. The concept being you know, that you've got a small group of people that live together in a communal household type model, whether the number is 10 or 12 or 15, whatever the math, that's, I don't really believe there's a magic in the number, but the concept being you've got a smaller group of people that they have their own rooms and bathrooms and showers like you would all want, except if you have a spouse and, you know, that's fine. I get that. You've got staff that are multi-purpose trained, that are self-directed and, and can make decisions and empowered on their own and do a lot of the care rendering beyond siloed job description, restricted functions. And you create a real home. I mean, that's, that's the basic line. It's a real home for somebody who's got a lot of care needs towards the end of life. And primarily, it's going to be about dementia. Mm-hmm. The first, second, third reason that people are going to come and need long-term care services like that for the next many decades is going to be dementia. And I think that's the right model. And I think the states, the Fed, you know, what they need to do is recognize that and help adequately fund Providers like us, like the other thousands of mission-driven providers throughout the, the country to be able to do that and capital grants and, you know, capital reimbursement rates, whatever that works in the structure to be able to do that model. I think on the, at the same time, you mentioned PACE, the program for all-inclusive care of the elderly, is a brilliant model. It's one of the, you know, very few well-tested, proven models for decades. There just hasn't been a lot of uptake. More for, you know, again, sort of branding the dearth of interest in general in older people and especially older poor people, a double whammy, Medicare, Medicaid, which is really what PACE is about, the dual eligibles. But it's a brilliant program. And again, I hope there, there will be efforts, money, attention paid to and facilitating the ease of the right kinds of providers to enter into that space and help care for older people in their homes, organizing this disparate healthcare supply chain in a way that really delivers value to people at home. I think it's a wonderful model. Between those two models, you can really deliver the right kind of dignified, respectful care that everyone would want for themselves and their loved ones at the end of life, after what hopefully will have been a long and productive and you know, healthy life. On your homepage, I believe it says that you all are a comprehensive care system. Is that related to the model you mentioned a couple minutes ago? And is it a model? Is that marketing? Is that mission? Is that important to you? That's a really good question. I do think of us, and a lot of the deep inquiry in the beginning, Peter was, was walking around asking people, you know, what, what do you, you meet somebody at a cocktail party and they ask you where, where you work, like, what do you do? You say, you, know, you can answer, I work, at a, I work at a bank, I work in a school, I work in a hospital. You know, easy kind of one word answers, everybody knows. What, what do you say here? Right? So some people say, oh, it's a nursing home, I work in a nursing home. But what about people that don't work in the nursing home? Most of our employees, most of our you know, 2,000 employees don't work in a nursing home. Right? They're in home care, home health aides, uh, nurses, physical therapists, occupational therapists, adult day health center, older adult housing operations, a Medicaid-assisted living. They're not in a nursing home. And well, you know, 
And so we really worked on that and re-articulated our mission, vision, and values as an organization and realized that the easiest, best way to articulate who we are and what we do is that we're a healthcare system for older adults. It's what we do. And as a system, and why I say we're a comprehensive system is that we help people, older adults, that's who we are. We help them age in their homes. We help them to get well and go home, right? Like the rehab business that I described, people coming from hospitals. And when needed and appropriate, we welcome them to our home. So it's comprehensive in the sense that older adults who need the kinds of care we provide, healthcare, not a housing provider. The goal is not for us to build and provide housing, it's for us to provide healthcare services in your home, helping you to transition back to your home or welcoming you to our home, you know, which is a nursing home, right? That's the idea behind the comprehensiveness of an organization like Jewish Home, which I don't think is really unique to Jewish Home. I think it's shared by a lot of our you know, members that I talk to and AJAS, the Association of Jewish Aging Services, which I'm very proud to be, you know, a member of and, and on the board of Leading Age, you know, same thing with lots of, you know, really mission-driven and motivated nonprofits that are focusing on older adults in this space. So that's mm-hmm. why I think I'd call it a comprehensive healthcare system from that viewpoint. Dr. Farber, I remember one of the first things you said to me when we jumped on the call was, you know, Mike. And I said, Mike. And he said, yeah, Dr. Mike Wasserman. And, and I said, yeah, I uh, had Dr. Mike on the podcast. He's one of my favorite followers on Twitter. And he's very opinionated. And one of the opinions that I'll never forget is he said, long-term care organizations should be led by a medical director. What does that mean to you? I think that you're probably the essence of what he believes should be running our industry. I share your enthusiasm for Mike and have a chance uh, a few months back to speak with him at a, at a conference in our field. I do think, you know, and, and that's my lens, right? As a physician executive, I bring to the table my clinical mindset of how I view what we do, which is why I view and chart our future as an organization now in our 173rd year as a healthcare organization providing services and whose mission is to empower and older adults to enhance their purpose and well-being. I also have business training, which I draw upon frequently, right? When I need to as a toolbox and combine the two to help get things done, because you also need to execute, right? On strategy, you need to be able to operationalize great ideas. It's not enough to have them or to even be passionate about them. You got to figure out how to actually deliver on them. And a lot of the business skills and ways of thinking and bringing those tools to, to bear are really helpful there. So I think and I share this with Mike and us myself being a physician executive. I don't think that you have to be a physician to be a, a long-term care you know, leader or a CEO of a, of a long-term care organization. Or I think it is very helpful. And I think physicians bring a very helpful set of skills and experience and uh, perspective to it. And I think what Mike's touching upon is particularly for long-term care, for nursing homes, the most frail, vulnerable, complex, end-of-life type of care, you certainly need to have a very strong and empowered you know, physician leader helping lead the efforts and the organization and, and the decision-making. So as a medical director or as the CEO. In terms of leadership, what would be the disadvantage if you didn't have that clinical background? Maybe it's hard for you to, to imagine, but I'm guessing you've received some comments from some of your team that have been in organizations that aren't led with someone who's clinical and doesn't have that background. You've probably at least heard some observational comments saying, I'm really glad you understand this. I think it's a fundamental question, actually. And I think it's part of what's led to a lot of our industry you know, Peter, kind of migrating in the direction of senior housing, retirement communities, like I mentioned, planned living communities. I think physician leaders would be much less likely to see that as the path forwards or the solution to the current troubles facing the industry. Again, not that there's anything wrong with providing those services. They're fundamentally different, however, from the way I, and I think most physician leaders and medical directors view the kinds of care needs that older adults have. And they're not mutually exclusive. I certainly appreciate and understand how, you know, having a safe home environment and, you know, meaningful interactions with others 
and social interactions is, is critical to healthy aging and people that can build places that cultivate and nurture and grow those interactions. That's wonderful. What's missing without the medical director seat at the table right, or the clinical perspective is a lot of what happens to the same people you know, that are needing and wanting these services at some point, it's generally speaking much later in life. And it's generally speaking towards the end of life. And healthcare becomes a big part of their experience. What happens? You just, that's what happens. It's part of why we are repulsed by older people. We, we reject, you know, I think fundamentally what happens, Peter, is, you know, you, you, you ask people, would you ever want to be in a nursing home? And 99% say, you know, no way, right? Shoot me instead. Put me out of my misery. So therefore, you associate nursing homes with these terrible places that no one wants to be. But what we're really doing is rejecting that vision of our future selves that would be in such a state of dependency on others that we would require a nursing home. And that is so distasteful and so anathema to, to our self-perception or identity of who we are as independent, vital, and strong human beings. I can't imagine that life. It's not a life worth living for me. And so therefore, we take all of that negative right, energy and fear and dump it on nursing homes. So I think the, getting back to the question of the medical perspective as a physician, you're naturally going to be thinking about and working on ways to improve the, the overall healthcare experience for people. And it's primarily, again, towards the end of life. It doesn't mean you have to technically be hospice eligible with a six-month life expectancy that you know, a physician thinks that's your likely life expectancy is less than six months, the criteria for hospice. But it means that you've got a lot less runway ahead of you than behind you, and you're probably in the last year or two, right, of life. Mm. And that's, I think, going to be better cared for and the combination of services and experience and the ways to deliver a dignified final phase of life and with a lot of strong physician leadership. You don't have to be the CEO again, but you need to be at that table. You know, and you need to have the CEO should have and should be consulting with and getting input from, you know, and hearing the perspectives from his or her medical director in how to make these big decisions. And what I see happening a lot in the industry is, is there's not enough of what Mike's talking about with empowered medical directors at the table making decisions. And so you end up not having that helpful input and that clinical healthcare viewpoint and focusing therefore on things like, you know, housing. And again, housing's fine, but where's the healthcare? And, and I'm a physician, so that's my bias. I readily admit it. That's my viewpoint. In Starting to wrap up, Dr. Farber, I have a question. It's kind of a curveball question, but it, it was your last comment inspired me to think, how would you go about changing the perception of long-term care? So instead of that, that's the last play I wanna, place I want to be, shoot me, I'm not going. If you had a director of nursing in the middle of Nebraska or an owner in the you know, in the middle of Arizona, small and say, you know, you're in a big organization, Dr. Farber, you can make a difference on the perception of many people because you're touching many people. How with the resources that the industry has based on your knowledge coming from many different industries, how would you go about changing that perception? Would you do it at the national level with an association? Should it be grassroots? Do you feel like you're already doing a good job and it just has to be organic and from the heart? Should it be organized? Sorry yeah. for this disorganized question. No, not at all. I, I think, Peter, and my hope would be the best way to go and move these things forward is really at the national level and saying, look, guys, if we've learned anything from this pandemic, we've learned that we've been, let's be honest, we've been underfunding and undersupporting our long-term care industry for generations. What do we want? We want, and what do we need? We need places that are compassionate care homes, places where you're gonna walk in the door. It looks like a home, it feels like a home. You go into a, a unit, it's not a hospital unit with a long corridor with double bedded rooms and a nursing station in the middle. It's a home. There's a, there's a living room, there's a dining area, you know, there's a, a nook where you've got you know, a lot of light coming in and a, and a fireplace if you're in a colder place. You know, you, you've got, it's a home and you've got nice private rooms and you have your privacy with your showers and you've got the wonderful warm embracing staff you know that we all struggle to retain right hire find and retain and you have excellent people like that you say okay i get it like i want this i want this for me i want this for my loved one i, I understand 
Because I think what we've done is we've created this false dichotomy, this choice between you could either age at home or you can age in a nursing home. And so what do you want? Well, no one wants to age in a nursing home if I could age at home. That's not the reality. There are many people that need to be in a nursing home because of those around the clock care needs and they're better off in a nursing home. So for them, we need to create something that's truly person-directed and compassionate and filled with empathy and what you would want for your loved ones. And you got to pay for it. It's never going to happen if you don't pay. You'll have for-profits doing things in a way that's going to just focus on keeping the lights on and, and making sure you could you know, run it as a business, not as a mission-driven, your ultimate goal being right to serve the community in their time of greatest need. That's it. It's not a business, right? It's a calling. And you're not going to do it if you don't fund it adequately. And I think that's you know, the main part. And other things, I mean, I, I think, you know, again, you need a national level. You would say, look, if there's a lot of barriers, for example, I think that there's a, a good number of families with older adults that would be well positioned to care for them in their home, but they don't know how, or it's too costly, or they'd have to outfit a room, they'd have to hire some help, and it's a lot to do. And so then create a tax credit. It's the easiest thing in the world. Give every family, whatever, $10,000 tax credit per year. Do with it what you will. Hire help if you need to. Use it to pay. You know, I don't care. You don't have to tell me what you're doing. If you're going to take your loved one in who's you know, otherwise nursing home eligible, you, know, you have criteria for what kind of functional and cognitive impairments like PACE, you, know, you have mm -hmm. criteria by the state and eligible, and you're going to care for them at home, God bless, do it. And then you create more, again, meaningful interactions. Kids can actually be with their grandparents, can see older people, can develop more meaningful relationships and not be you know, so repulsed by and never viewing frailty and then ultimately death and dying. Make it more organic, man, it's a part of life and who we do and what we do. And I think that's a way to go. So I, I think it's at that national kind of policy level again. And I mm -hmm. think, you know, you, you can't draw blood from a stone, right? So what you've done, what we've done to the industry is demand a certain level of care and staffing facilities with private rooms, but there's been no resources provided to make that happen for the dual eligible Medicare and Medicaid population, hmm. because we've done a tremendous job as an industry and continue to do a great job for those with needs and building all sorts of really nice things that hit all of those needs and they hit them well, and they'll continue to do well. But I'm talking about for, for the majority of the older people, the 1.5 or so million that are, you know, without those types of means. And it doesn't look like people are going to have it in the future when you look at savings rates and planning for long-term care and that kind of thing. That's what we need to be doing here. Thank you for fielding my curveball question as we wrap up. Is there anything I haven't asked you, Dr. Farber, that I should or something that you would like to highlight before we sign off? Thanks, Peter, for that, this opportunity. And, and thank you for allowing us, to, inviting me to join your, your podcast and have this discussion. I think whenever leaders like yourself and, and, you know, pay attention to and want to talk about these things, that's what we need. We need that attention and uh, awareness. So I thank you for what you're doing here. I guess I, you know, the pandemic is still so much on my mind as it is for everybody else. And I'll share, I think, a viewpoint that I've used a lot and shared with a lot of colleagues and in my job here with all of our Jewish home family and employees to help make it through, which is, you know, it's all the perspective. And while we don't know when this crisis is going to end, it seems to be going on forever, a little bit of hope, and then you have to step back. And we, we don't know when it's going to end, but we do know, and I know. You know, I believe with absolute certainty that it will end. And therefore, every passing day, as painful as it may be, and certainly back last spring for us and in different times for others, depending on the geography and where COVID was spreading, each day was a nightmare. But at the end of each day, it was a victory, right? Because it brought you one day closer to making it through. So whatever that end at the end is, you know, two years, you know, three years, whatever the it's going to end, but I know now that I'm one day closer. And that's a really encouraging perspective. And, and I would love to share that with the audience. Appreciate as well. that. Hope that it proves as useful as it has proved to me and, and my team here. Thank you so much. Dr. Farber, some of the listeners are going to want to reach out to you and connect and thank you or ask you some follow-up questions. Where can we find you online? Definitely check out our website, jewishhome.org. And I'd be happy to get emailed directly. It's jfarber at jewishhome.org. Thank you so much for joining LTC Heroes. I look forward to connecting with you and uh, having a future conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Farber. 
Likewise, Peter. Thank you. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.